The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today to help us find food truth is Professor Michael Carolan. He is an associate professor of sociology at Colorado State University And he is the author of one of the most terrific books I have ever read on the topic of food. And the title is The Real Cost of Cheap Food. Michael, welcome. Well, well, thank you for having me. That's quite the generous introduction, Melinda. Well, I have to ask you, now you're a sociologist. What made you get into the topic of food and agriculture? Well, it started with my my training at Iowa State University. Um, I kind of... I guess I kind of stumbled into it because my typical trajectory as an undergraduate was I was exposed to um, a typical liberal arts type of sociology training, and it wasn't until I got to Iowa State University where they focused so heavily on food and ag issues that I began to be exposed to this this field that's kind of known as rural sociology as well as the sociology of food and agriculture. And having grown up in rural Iowa, I kind of naturally took interest in it just because I wanted to learn more about the surroundings and the countryside in which I grew up in. And in doing that, I became more interested in just the subject of food and agriculture more generally. And from there, it just kind of took on a life of its own. And with it being food, food is something that we we can all relate to, whether or not you grew up in a small rural community or not. Um, so it's even though I no longer live in that small rural community, food is a part of my life every single day, and I continually want to understand my life better. And and one way of doing that is by understanding food, since it's with me at least three or four times a day in my family. So that's kind of how it started, and that's how it continues to nurture me, just because it's such an literally an intimate part of our lives. Because we we come into we. We consume, we put food into us every day, and it's it's fun to talk about as a professor too with students because it's one of those subjects that everybody has an opinion on and everybody has some level of interest in because, again, it's something we need and something that, that is such a part of our everyday lives. Yeah, and you know, next to sex, I think it's the most intimate thing that we do, and we do it three times a day, oftentimes without thought, and yet... I speak as a dietitian now, it has such a tremendous impact on how we feel, how we think, how we can do our work. And so this whole idea of cheap food comes at a very important time in our culture's history. We have globally, and that's your audience, and I love that, you know, you've got this global take on this topic. Globally, we have equal amounts of people who are quote-unquote hungry and people who are obese, although those two come together, and we'll talk about that. But we're also dealing with really hard economic times. We've got demonstrations in many cities across the country. Cheap food is one place where we can maybe save a few pennies, and yet it's cheap food without looking at a lot of externalities. So 
First, let's talk about this notion of cheap food. Why are we not talking about the full cost? Well, I have this conversation often in my classes, and and this is part of the reason why I personally find it interesting also as a sociologist is that we're taught way back in graduate school, we hear this term, the sociological imagination, all the time, and it's a term that was kind of made famous by a well-known 20th century sociologist, C. Wright Mills, and to oversimplify the concept, it's it's simply to kind of see the interconnectedness of everything, and if there's anything that is intimately interconnected with almost every facet of, of, of life, whether at the micro level or at the macro global level, it's food, and um, that's what I tried to do with this book, and there were a number of surprising moments myself when I was doing this research, just finding how food and agriculture and food policy and agricultural policy and trade policy impacts things from people's diets to um, it even can be connected to, to conflict and civil war in some places because as a result of having food insecurity, um, it reduces the transaction costs, if you will, for recruiting people into certain activities that they might not otherwise have been recruited into. But simply to put food on their table, there's lots of evidence that suggests that there's been a number of instances where food is used as a recruiting tool to bring people into the fold of civil wars and even the even the global war on terrorism as a way of recruiting members in just simply so they can feed their families and feed themselves. And so it's one of these immensely interconnected subjects that I, I just don't think people f- fully grasp for, for whatever reason. I, I see this constantly in my, the, my Petri dish of a classroom. It gives me a, a taste of every day kind of what, what people think. And I, I just don't think people fully appreciate how interconnected at a global level food is. And once they start thinking about it, then suddenly the floodgates open. That's what I'm trying to do with my book to some degree, is once you get people starting to talk about and think about how food is so intimately connected with everything, then suddenly people seem to take more of an interest in it. And until that is put into their face, they they push it to the side and, and worry about other things because there's plenty of things in the world to worry about. And But it does seem to be once people realize the, the interconnectedness of it all, they begin to take more of an interest in wanting to learn more about Ma- it. Michael, do you think that food should cost more? Well, that's a, an excellent point because I... I, I hear that critique a lot when when I talk about these issues of, of full cost accounting and I bring up questions about, well, what about the cost of this and what about the cost of that? And then someone will say, well, you're just talking about wanting more expensive food. And, you know, as a college professor, that's something that you can talk about. What about individuals that are working two part-time jobs and are just eking by trying to put food on the table? But I think that's only part that's only part of the question. Am I asking for more expensive food, if you will? And what my point is in the book is I talk about how, well, if you have full cost accounting, undoubtedly you're going to have more expensive food in terms of retail price. But if global incomes rise faster than the price of food, then slightly more expensive food is it becomes irrelevant and that's why i think you need to talk about food policy at a very large global level because that's one way you can tackle full cost accounting but equally we realize that the the 20th century food policy we've we've tried it now for at least 50 years 
as an experiment. And I think there's far more empirical evidence that suggests that it has been a failed experiment than a successful experiment, not just in terms of when you look at the the rates of of hunger, but also if you look at the rates of, of poverty and other things that can be, by the way, tied to food policy, you begin to realize that maybe if we tried something different that could boost the average global income, then if the global incomes are rising, then a little bit more expensive food actually isn't going to harm anybody's pocketbook if that pocketbook's growing faster than the re- retail price of food. So I guess you you would say, yes, I am saying food needs to be more expensive, but to go about doing it the correct way, I would argue that the pocketbooks would be increasing at a propor- at a rate faster than the price of food. So it kind of more than offsets any type of internal cost accounting that would happen. Well, that's a really interesting point because I talk about this too with regard to eating good food, healing foods, healthful foods. And what often comes up is that, well, you know, we can't raise incomes because that would lead to a loss of jobs. But really, we have to talk about incomes. We have to talk about fair structures of incomes. I think that's what's going on at Wall Street right now. (laughs) But that's part of it. That's part of the equation that I see is just as you mentioned, we need to have incomes rising. But we also have to factor in those, that full cost accounting measure where you talk in your book, for example, about pesticides and how we're really not taking into consideration the full cost of the use of those pesticides or any other environmental abuse if we could make sure that manufacturers are adding on the prices that they're passing on to society, but you you say beautifully, we socialize costs but privatize the benefits. So let's talk a little bit about that. I do. I I like that term because inevitably someone will talk about, when we're talking about internalizing these costs, someone will drop the S word and, and label some of these approaches as being socialist, but what we're what we're really talking about is whereas so called free market capitalism socializes um, the cost and privatizes the benefits, kind of what I what I'm arguing in this book is that we need to socialize both the costs as well as the benefits. And one of the things that I've tried to get across in this book is and one of this is kind of a, one of my aha moments, if you will, too, is in doing this research, I never fully appreciated just how expensive, even at this very moment, much of the cheap food really is. I mean, we we talk about the cost to future generations and the cost to the environment and the cost to animals in the form of animal suffering and so on and so forth. And I get and agree with all of that. Um, We need to look at all that when it comes to full-cost accounting, but putting all that to the side, cheap food is is really terribly expensive even to us as taxpayers right now. And I, I like stressing that point when I give this talk to the public and to politicians and, and sometimes even to my class because I like the angle because I, I realize that for a lot of people, why they care about the intrinsic value of the environment and animal welfare, they they care more about their pocketbook. And I, I, can, I can respect that. I get that. The pocketbook is what puts food on the table, if, if you will, and a roof over our heads. And so when you look at you, it, it's fascinating how you can draw ties to even just to how expensive cheap food is to the taxpayer. And if you're able to do that, you can make a pretty compelling argument 
that cheap food really isn't all that cheap when you're able to make direct links to cheap food and the taxpayer. And, and I, I do this a number of times in my book, and I'll just mention really quickly two times that I do it that I think that, that seems to resonate with people. One is I think you can make a pretty compelling case that cheap food to some degree is an artifact of cost shifting from the food and ag sector to the healthcare sector. And one way you can do that is just by looking at the, in affluent countries, the cost of being overweight is literally in the hundreds of billions of dollars a year annually when it, in, in terms of, of healthcare costs. And so, of course, you can't say that's all the result of current food policy, but I think you can make a pretty compelling argument and show pretty compelling data that that's at least in significant part the result of current food policy, the, the, the changing shape of the average American figure. And so there's one example of how cheap food is a significant burden on taxpayers. And then another example I give is another way that we make food cheap is by pinching a lot of people in the food system in, in terms of not providing, say, workers with a livable wage or with, with adequate benefits. And so there's lots of examples out there. One that I talk about in my book is a study out of UC Berkeley's Labor Center that estimates that California taxpayers are spending roughly $80 million annually providing health care and other public assistance, such as food stamps and subsidized housing, to the state's 44,000 Walmart employees. And two of the factors accounting for that are the company's low wages and, and poor health insurance benefits packages. And it, it goes on to estimate that if all retailers followed the Walmart model in California, California taxpayers would be paying over $400 million a year. And so it's interesting. You're able to, and to some degree, talk about low wages as equivalent to a tax increase. And that's I think that's really fascinating, and it kind of turns conventional political thinking on its head, where you can say, you know, are you really worried about taxes, and, and are you really concerned about the taxpayer? Then you should be arguably for higher wages and for the type of food system that, that folks like myself and you are calling for. I think that's a great way to discuss this. If you're just joining us, we are having a wonderful conversation about a terrific book. We are speaking with Michael Carolyn, who is an associate professor of sociology at Colorado State University, and the book we're talking about is his excellent The Real Cost of Cheap Food. I highly recommend this book. It's easy to read, it's hard to put down, and it touches on just about every topic that is near and dear to my heart in the food world. One of the other topics that I thought was so important that I really wanted to discuss with you is this illusion of choice. So we have individuals who are eating cheap food and suffering the health consequences, as you just mentioned, costing taxpayers many billions of dollars as a result. And yet so many people, even within the healthcare community, will look at an individual, children included, sadly, and say, well, you know, if they're overweight, they're just making bad choices. But it's been my experience traveling across the country that it's extremely difficult to find the choices that I want to eat. Let's talk about the lack of choice and yet this incredible marketing advertising scheme that tells us that indeed we have all these choices. Yeah, you've, you've touched on... If I were to say that my book was on two things, one would be the importance of real total cost accounting. But secondly, it's, it is an attack on this concept of consumer sovereignty because that, that's something I confront regularly as well about people 
making the argument about how what can we do? This is something that the consumers are ultimately choosing, and what one would be what you are arguing for in a sense is is some sort of social experimentation. But what I try to show in this book is that the, this concept that our food system is an expression of consumer choice is a complete fallacy. In fact, consumer choice is a reflection of our food system in a sense we we choose what we're allowed to choose and mm-hmm. and we know this from endless endless surveys that 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 consumers want things like whole food and organic food and local food and ethically raised food, but since they're not available, they have no way of signaling the market of that want. And we also know that through experimentation, studies where healthier foods are made available and are reduced in price, consumers respond by increasing the the purchase frequency of those of those goods proportionately and so we we certainly know that consumers want these alternative options to conventional highly processed food but in many cases they're not given that option i like to start sometimes when i give public talks sometimes with a gimmick and i have a and i mentioned this in the book too how um, I'll hold up a red bell pepper and a, and a box of um, chocolate fudge Pop-Tarts. And I talk about how, and this kind of very simply kind of encapsulates where we're at today in terms of 60 years of food policy. I can get a six-pack of chocolate fudge Pop-Tarts for the same price as two red bell peppers, which is roughly $3.99 or $4. And that, that's really fascinating because when you look at, here we are with with regard to the chocolate fudge Pop-Tart. We have something, but there's over 50 different ingredients in it. There is a, a, a world in Times Square next to the M&M world and the Hershey store in, in New York. It has its own world. And somehow we're able to purchase the six-pack of Pop-Tarts for the same price as two bell peppers. And that really, I can't explain entirely why that is. I have some reasons for that, but I think that really nicely encapsulates and says something about about where we're at today in terms of about our food choices because it's entirely unfair to say that consumers are choosing Pop-Tarts and 99-cent double cheeseburgers from McDonald's when when you look at it from a price perspective, consumers are responsive to price. And when those things are so much lower priced retail price-wise than red bell peppers, for example, that's more the result of policy and engineering as well, political engineering, 60, 60 years worth of, of social engineering as a result of food policy that, that we're where we're at today with regard to our, our diet in many cases. So let's get back to the individual consumer or the food service buyer. I think so many of us feel powerless in the political scheme, and yet we have to make food buying decisions every day. How do we make it so that the individual who is buying food for a hospital or a college or a home can move to change the system so that the red peppers reflect a better cost in terms of their healing properties and the chocolate fudge Pop-Tarts cost more. How do we get involved in changing that system? Well, the the standard line in in the social sciences is that it it requires pressure from both the bottom and the top. That's That's the common saying in that. First of all, of course, we have to start signaling the market in in the sense of of making those choices purchasing those goods but of course to get back what to what i just said 
you know, if those choices are not available, if those choices are so overpriced that they're out of the reach of most people, this is where the pressure from the top comes in as well in terms of, I don't see subsidies going away anytime in the near future, but since we're we're subsidizing one form of agriculture and and one model of agriculture, I I see it entirely realistic where a compelling argument can be made that we can we can equally should equally subsidize these alternative forms so that those red bell peppers are not four dollars for two, and so a a working single father or single mother can purchase those things and not have to find themselves purchasing the 99 cent double cheeseburger and so it takes action at both the individual level as consumers but it also inevitably takes some sort of larger collective action in terms of pressuring those at the top to to be able to make this food more affordable and more accessible and to provide signals for producers for example to to get into producing red bell peppers for instance too as opposed to a continuation of the status quo mhm Well, there are many chapters that I want to go over, but I did stumble upon Chapter 5, Cheap Meat. Because here's an example of a situation where, just as you say, people want the grass-fed, the organic meat, and it's just not available in the stores. I've even had conversations with farmers who are producing it but don't have a market. How do we make quality meat available to consumers? Wow, that that is a good question because, and I, I, I talk about it in this book as well. We have to, I think, first of all, we have to ask the bigger question of, of with current trends continuing as they are, we're expected to see a doubling of meat consumption over the next thirty years or so. And so we have to first ask the question: Is there any way in heck that we can possibly sustain? a doubling of meat consumption in the next 30 years. And I, I, I don't, this is not ideology. This, is, this goes against simple laws of physics. I do not see how it's possible that we can, first of all, have, a, have an increase of our own population, most likely nine and a half, moving up to somewhere between 9 billion and 10 billion people on this planet between now and 2050. Then on top of that, well, let me add, then on top of that, we also have an increase in biofuel consumption and production, uh, yeah. which is also going to take more food, in a sense. And then on top of that, the third thing is we have a, a, if we have a doubling of, of meat consumption in the next 30 years, and that meat is going to be largely fed, or at least I should say finished, with corn and soybeans, where is all of this grain going to come from? And so that's... That's part. That's part of the discussion we we have to have too. And I, this does this does rankle people's feathers because there's no way that everybody in the world can consume meat at the same level that we do here in the United States, especially red red meat in particular, because it's such a poor converter of grain to live weight gain. Um, mm-hmm. So, I, but that that sidesteps the issue. You asked the question: How do we get? How can we have access to affordable meat? Not should everybody be consuming meat at the, in the world at the same level uh, as the average United States um, citizen. So recognizing that we can all consume meat, consume meat at the same level as the U.S. citizen, we're going to probably have to, at least in the U.S., consume a little bit less. And undoubtedly, you could make the case that some parts of the world should be could be at least consuming a little bit more those that are consuming 
very little or none. And how do we do that? There's there's lots of different ways that we can go about actually producing meat sustainably, just obviously not at the levels that we are currently. One way of doing that is, and when we talk about meat, we're not just talking about red meat, but we're talking about things like potentially pork or chicken, and pork and chicken, as you know, are, are much more efficient converters of of one form of food into live weight gain. But there's there's lots of food that gets wasted in this world, and I know I know you know this as well that the they, in the United States estimates vary, but one um, estimates is that we we waste up to half of all of our food in the United States for lots of different reasons. If you look at all the food that's wasted in the world, then you recognize that there are some animals that actually can consume organic waste or wasted food, most notably pigs and chickens. If we could cons- if we could feed some of that, or ideally all of that food waste to livestock, that would be a a way of utilizing a wasted resource because by definition food waste is waste. Um, and it, we could convert it into a, a, another form. And then secondly, when it, with regard to red meat consumption, there are some parts of the world that are pasture-rich but arable land poor. You know, in the United States, we have lots of this wonderful land that can be brought under cultivation, but in other parts of the world, most notably Africa, they don't have this vast amount of arable land and, and rich water resources. They have lots of pasture land, however, you know, in those countries, they, you could make a, a, a good case for part of their food security could come through livestock and animal consumption precisely because they have all of this pasture land that really can't be used for anything other than raising arguably cattle, um, unless you wanted to use a, a lot of inputs and a lot of irrigation and things like that. So I think there's lots of different strategies that we can use to provide more affordable meat but just not at the same levels. We shouldn't be expecting the, the, the levels of consumption today to continue as they're trending, at least. Well, we'll just have to let people go to your book and read that chapter on cheap meat because it's fascinating, and it, it piggybacks onto many human health issues like antibiotic resistance and hormones in the food system. We only have a minute left. I knew this would happen. <laughs> I'm going to have to have you come back because there are many more chapters we must discuss, but... I want to give you a chance to touch on something quickly, briefly, that I may have neglected to touch on. What's important to you to let our listeners know? What's most important to me is to fully appreciate that food policy is not something that is is purely local, is purely national, or for that matter, purely global. It's, it, it impacts every single level, and any solution must be pointed to those various levels as well. There's no magic bullet when it comes to food policy. There's, there, was a, there was something that came out of the UN, we need to move away from the, the Green Revolution to what they called the Rainbow Evolution. We need multiple solutions attacking many different scales in order to have real food security. And we need to understand that those multiple levels and how they work together. I think that's a wonderful send-off. I want to thank you so much. We've been speaking with Michael Carroll, and he's an associate professor of sociology at Colorado State University, and his terrific book is called The Real Cost of Cheap Food. And if you have anyone in your family who is interested in food and food policy and trying to understand all the snarly issues, this is the one-stop book that is just a fascinating 
non-put-down readable book. I love it. Thank you so much for being with me, Michael. I want to thank our listeners for being with us. And I remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you again, Michael, for this terrific book. Thank you, Melinda. Thank you.